Hi, it's Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Uh, today's episode, we're going to uh, broach the subject of spying and the American Revolutionary War. And I'm sure uh, all the listeners out there have been tuned in in the last uh, five, six years to the, uh, to the epic uh, documentary Turn and talking about Washington spies and copper, uh, the copper ring on Long Island, um, people like John Graves Simcoe. So we're going to be talking about spying uh, and the Revolutionary War. So uh, the secret side of war. So let, let us begin. Spying and warfare have always gone hand in hand, from Julius Caesar to modern generals. We have accounts of commanders covertly gathering information about their opponents, ensuring they have the intelligence they need to conduct a bona fide war. Because of the nature of their work, the stories of spies are often lost into history. Those operating in the ancient world, when documentary evidence was slim, seldom left any trails. In more recent times, there have often been reasons to deliberately hide the trail. It is probably no coincidence that 85% of the records of the Special Operations Executives, Britain's covert operations against the organization of the Second World War, were destroyed in mysterious fire. Even after their work is done, the revelation of a spy's identity can be quite dangerous, while sharing techniques can lose a nation its given edge. It is hardly surprising the work of spies during the American Revolution remained shrouded in secrecy. Through their work was virtual and vital to the cause of freedom. It was carried out in the shadows, often informally, with a great deal of care and secrecy. Anyone caught spying was liable to be hanged by the British. This was a war in which it was relatively easy to put spies into the field. The two sides shared a common language and culture. Loyalties were quite divided, and some men could as easily have taken the British side as the revolutionary one. Spies didn't have to be picked out for specialist language skills. It was easy for them to, to blend in and understand documents they obtained or conversations they overheard. The lives of the two sides were already deeply entangled some of these spies were celebrated during their lifetimes. The achievements of others remained quite concealed. During the 20th century, hidden port parts of their story were gradually revealed. Historians have pierced together the fragments of information available, joining the dots by it to turn isolated incidences into a picture of these men hard at work. By comparing documents and identifying handwriting, they discovered spies whose identities have remained secret for more than a century. The activities of the agents working for Washington and other revolutionary commanders were revealed. Though much remains quite unknown, including how deeply some of the minor players were involved. Foremost among these spies were the agents of the Culper Ring, based in New York during the British occupation. They provided vital intelligence from behind the enemy lines. Their work gave Washington an insight into the British forces and their plans. They helped to turn the war in the revolutionaries' favor, and now their story can once more be told. So let's, let's examine before the Copper Ring existed, the early parts of the Revolutionary War. By the summer of 1776, progress in the Revolutionary War had turned against the cause of independence. The war had started well for the revolutionaries. Every colony had joined together to gain independence from Britain. The British spent a lot of their lives and resources in an attempt to seize the Charlestown Peninsula, only to give up on efforts to relieve a besieged Boston, withdrawing from the region totally. A raid on Fort Ticonderoga had supplied the Americans with artillery with which they began a bombardment of Boston on Breed's Hill. Further south, attempts by the royal governor, Lord Dunmore, to suppress the revolution in Virginia had failed. He was defeated in battle at Great Bridge and retreated to Norfolk. 
before fleeing by the sea. In South Carolina, a conflict between Loyalist and Patriot militias saw the Loyalists driven out of the colony over the winter of 1775 through 6. But not everything was going the Patriots' way, and soon the tide of war threatened to turn. In Britain, the government recognized the need to recruit more men and send them to fight for the colonies. They took the unusual step of arming Irish Catholics as part of this force. Recognizing that Irish Protestants were more sympathetic to the Presbyterian-dominated revolutionaries and their cause. In the North, the Patriots tried to raise a Canadian revolution against the British, calling upon natives and French-speaking Quebecians to join their cause, but a campaign launched against Quebec failed and the Patriot forces retreated. In the summer of 1776, William Howe, one of the leading British generals, went on the offensive. He landed troops on Staten Island and defeated Washington in the Battle of Long Island. By September, the Patriots were in retreat, leaving Howe to take control of New York, the most important trading port in America, and already one of the leading cities of the world. As Washington prepared to retreat from New York, the Patriot leadership faced a difficult decision, one that could provide both the necessity and the opportunity to create the Culper Ring. New York was a beautiful city and a great trading post. If they left it standing, it would give shelter to the British Army. Many merchants in town would inevitably help to supply the British Army with food whether because of loyalist sympathies or because they chose profit over patriotism. The British military, better organized, equipped, and experienced than its militia opponents, would be almost impossible to dislodge once it was established in the city. Many were urged Washington to burn New York down to the ground before he left. But destroying New York had huge disadvantages. It would displace tens of thousands of people living there. It would turn many New Yorkers against the Patriot cause, their own cause. And in the long term, it would deprive a newly established nation as one of its most significant assets. Rather than choose between these two abysmal options, Washington passed the decision to Congress. They ordered him not to burn New York. The city was left for how to take. And so, the stage was set for the most important web of espionage in the Revolutionary War. Washington needed to gain every advantage he could if he was to beat the British. New York, the headquarters of Howe's army, the center of British supply lines, and home to thousands of sympathetic patriots, was the perfect place for spies to operate out of. The operations that would precede the Ring were about to begin. The first stages of espionage. Howe's offensive against New York was the scene of some limited espionage by Washington and his officers. Generals Mercer and Livingston both succeeded in sneaking spies into occupied territory to find out about British forces and movements. And one of these men overheard conversations between British generals. But the information provided was limited and inaccurate indicating an impending attack on New Jersey when the real target was Long Island. As the pressure mounted, so did the espionage efforts. Governor George Clinton hatched a scheme to kidnap and question two Tories. But this came to nothing. He also snuck two Patriot agents, Benjamin Ludlam and William Treadwell, into British-occupied Long Island. But they returned with inaccurate troop numbers and vague, useless insights. Part of the problem was Washington was limiting himself in his aims and methods. Instead of trying to place long-term agents behind enemy lines, he was sending one or two-man scouting parties to observe the enemy, often under cover of night, and gain military intelligence. Information on the positions and movements of troops it was the sort of intelligence work Washington had done during the French and Indian War, and which in Europe was regarded as a suitable activity for an officer and a gentleman. There was little training or support for this work, 
and no expertise available in real spycraft. Hale versus Rogers. Born in Coventry, Connecticut in 1755, Nathan Hale was a native-born son of the colonies. The sixth child of a strict congressionalist family, he was assiduous in his daily prayers and had been educated for a career in the church. In 1769, he went to Yale, which at that time was home to around 100 students, where the atmosphere of discipline and strict religious observance matched his old life at home. The curriculum at Yale was grounded in the obsessions of the European Enlightenment, which in turn had evolved from medieval and ancient thinking. It included ancient languages, logic, rhetoric, and mathematics subjects which would help to sharpen the mind in a variety of different ways. But more useful for a future spy were the intellectual activities students engaged in during their free time. Hale was a member of the Limian Debating Society, the Brothers of Unity, literally society, literary society, and took part in theatrical productions including Robert Dusley's The Toy Shop, such activities gave him skills in acting and in fast talking that he would later use in life as a spy. Hale's time at Yale was not all productive. He began to enjoy the life of a young man, drinking and misbehaving, often in the company of his classmates, Benjamin Talmadge, the future head of the Culper Ring. Only three months after he arrived at Yale, Hale's father wrote to him, urging him to focus on his studies. Yale formed Hale in other ways. It was a hotbed of radicalism, which the loyalist Thomas Jones labeled a nursery of sedation. Its students were the first in America to boycott British goods in protest at the events leading up to the revolution. This was a place that helped to cement Hale's patriot tendencies. By the time he graduated, Hale decided against the life of ministry his family had planned for him. Instead, he became a schoolmaster. His first job was in a Connecticut town whose quiet atmosphere bored him to death. In less than a year, he was applying for another job. When the war came, it offered an opportunity for excitement as well as the chance to fulfill his patriotic duty. Hale signed up almost immediately becoming a first lieutenant in the 3rd Company of the 7th Regiment, a newly raised Connecticut militia unit. As 1776 approached and the terms of enlistment came to an end, he was promoted to captain-lieutenant rather than leave alongside many of his peers. His regiment was retitled the 19th Foot as Washington reorganized his desperate militias into a single army of revolution. Hale missed the engagements with Howe during the early stages of the war. He arrived outside Boston in time to join a period of relative peace and inactivity, during which he filled his time drinking, playing checkers, and writing poems. If he had been looking for excitement, this wasn't it. But it was at least more fun than life in the backwoods of a teacher. In March of 1776, Hale's unit was relocated to New York. As Washington prepared to face the British counterattack, Hale was appalled by the attitude of many locals who eagerly awaited the return of the British. By late August, Hale had been moved to Brooklyn. Held in reserve, he and his comrades in arms bore witness to the American defeat there on the 27th and 28th and took part in the subsequent retreat. Frustrated at the lack of action, Hale transferred to Knowlton's Rangers, a new unit led by Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Knowlton, which was being prepared for special scouting operations. This force offered the guarantee of action to the impetuous young Hale. By the start of September, Captain Hale was leading a company in reconnaissance operations. Washington approached Knowlton and asked him to recruit men from his unit to act as spies. Knowlton had experience in this area having helped General Mercer to get an agent into Staten Island in July. But almost none of the officers in the Rangers wanted to be a spy, a task involving trickery and deception. 
It was regarded as beneath the dignity of a gentleman in that day. In the end, the recruitment effort was saved from failure by one man as Hale volunteered. Hale was a distinctive-looking young man with handsome features, a large mole on his neck, and some scars on his forehead caused by a gunpowder flash, a hazard of using the heir's black powder weapons. He wasn't going to blend in as easily as others might, but he was a smart, brave, and, will, and willing to take on the task. For a commanding officer in desperate need of good intelligence, those were all the qualifications that mattered. Washington met with Hale to provide him with instructions for his mission. Rather than taking the direct route of the military scout, landing in occupied Brooklyn or Staten Island, he would travel to Connecticut and then across the Sound to land behind the British Army. He would travel up Long Island, observing the troops and supplies being mustered there, their destinations, and when they began embarking on ships for the next stage of the British advance. It was a mission that would set the pattern for the Culper Ring's work, including the information gathered and the route used. The war had made the sound a haven for illicit activity, as smugglers and gunrunners profited from selling to both sides. The British and Americans both had ships in the area to support their own activities and prevent smuggling to their opponents. These were dangerous waters. A pair of Patriot ships, the Schuler and the Montgomery, transported Hale across the Sound under cover of darkness on the night of the 16th of September. He was rowed ashore before the dawn of the 17th, dressed in civilian clothes with only his identifying document his diploma, which would allow him to claim he was a traveling teacher. He was ready to begin his work. The Halifax, a British ship, came within hours of catching them during this perilous expedition. Even after missing the Patriots' vessels, the British were left wondering why they had approached the Long Island shore. One man on the Halifax, Robert Rogers, was particularly interested in what Hale was doing. Rogers was a man with an eye for skullduggery, a veteran military scout and commander of a force of rangers. He had tried to play both sides off against each other to get himself the best possible position at the start of the war. He had even gone so far as to seek permission to travel as a civilian behind American lines, hiding the fact that he was being paid by the British. This rightly drew suspicion from Washington leading to Rogers' capture and escape from captivity. Few British soldiers were more duplicitous than Rogers, and Rogers' own experience in lies and deception would help him spot lies in others. Rogers and his rangers were launching raids against the Patriots across the Long Island Sound, as well as interfering with enemy activities there. Rogers recruited agents up and down the coast, offering good payment for information, and so by the time Hale crossed the Sound, Rogers had heard about two British ships lurking suspiciously in the area. He and a band of rangers took sail on the Halifax to intercept them, arriving a bit too late. But another of Rogers' agents saw the Schuler lurking in the port of Norwalk and a man being dropped off there. It was clear to Rogers that he, the Patriots, had planted a spy behind Lewis Lyons. In the time it took Hale to get into position, the war had moved on. Hale had launched his big attack, making Hale's original mission redundant. He would have to advance further and more quickly if he was going to gather more valuable information. As he rushed, rushed to catch up with the advancing armies, his lack of subversion gave him away. Rogers, anticipating Hale's actions, had himself and his men dropped off ahead of the spy's route to the front. On the 19th, they spotted Hale. Rather than snatch him up, they spent the whole of the 20th covertly watching him as he took notes of every barracks and military unit he passed. That evening, Rogers approached Hale in the tavern, where he was spending the night. Pretending to be a patriot militiaman trapped behind enemy lines, Rogers earned Hale's trust. Hale soon confessed that he was who he was and what his mission was, 
believing he was recruiting Rogers to work for him. Rogers was now confident of his man, but needed him to confess in front of witnesses. He invited Hale to join him for dinner at another tavern the next day. On the afternoon of the 21st, Hale joined Rogers for dinner. With Rogers were several other men who he introduced as fellow patriots, but who were rangers in disguise. While they drank and Hale talked about his mission, others of Rogers' men surrounded the tavern. Hale was seized. As he was led outside in irons, several passers-by identified him as a member of the Connecticut Hale family and a rebel. The rangers took Hale to General Hal's headquarters. Arriving late at night, Rogers and Hal fetched from bed to sign a death warrant. The evidence against Hale included all the notes he had taken while spying and his confession in front of the witnesses. A known enemy operative caught in plain clothes, he was condemned as a spy without the need for a full court-martial. The next morning, Hale was taken to the artillery park. He delivered his last words, speaking with composure of how he had done his duty. He was hanged and buried there. That evening, word reached the Patriot Command of what had happened. They did not want to damage morale by letting the word out of the botched operation. And so Hale's name was quietly entered into the casualty records while nothing was publicly made of the incident. Behind closed doors, some were urged indignant at the execution of one of their own, seeking and seething for revenge. Because of the cover-up, rumors of Hale's fate did not reach his family until the end of September. In late October, his brother Enoch finally obtained confirmation of what had happened, and he had to travel to the army camp himself in search of news. Hale's embarrassed superiors had done his family and, and his memory a disservice, but they would at least learn lessons from the disastrous mission that led to his death. So now we're going to talk about laying the groundwork for Cooper, Clark, and Talmadge. As Washington withdrew from New York, the already difficult challenge of gathering good intelligence became nearly impossible. The advancing British could get information about Patriot forces from the people left behind in areas they passed through. But that was not the option for Washington. There were no longer refugees or illicit travelers reaching his camp from occupied territory. Without a pertinent base, any agents he tried to plant would be unable to send messages or return to him. Even his military scouts were not penetrating as deeply toward the enemy as he wanted. Despite the difficulties, Washington was unwilling to give up on intelligence work. He asked Colonel John Cadwalder to recruit agents, not only to gather intelligence on the enemy, but also to execute counterintelligence. Spreading misinformation about American military activities, and in late December, one of these agents procured a map of British deployments around Princeton, while also convincing some British officers the Americans had more soldiers than they did. Meanwhile, scouts from both sides snuck across enemy lines under the cover of night, counting numbers and estimating dispositions. The turn of the year brought a significant change. Following the battles of Denton and Princeton, the British withdrew from New York. No longer preoccupied with retreat, Washington could sit still in the hills around Morristown, New Jersey, where he had much time to seriously consider his intelligence gathering efforts. Washington recognized he needed to recruit civilians as spies instead of the military men he had used previously. A middle-aged man named Nathaniel Sackett was hired to head up the operation. Employed on a salary of $50 per month, he was also given a budget of $500 to enter New York to recruit agents. Sackett would need support, someone with military authority who could raise and be a liaison with officers and other dispatch riders to carry intelligence for the general. For this, he was given a deputy. Captain Benjamin Talmadge of the 2nd Continental Light Dragoons. Like his best friend, Nathaniel Hale, 
Talmadge had gone from studying at Yale to become a teacher. Unlike Hale, his first teaching post suited him as he got to socialize with the leading families of Wethersfield, Connecticut, which was a very powerful place for um, uh, politics and for money at that time. There he found himself among people of revolutionary tendency who gradually won him around to bring him to the cause. Though initially reticent, he became increasingly convinced the revolution was a religiously righteous cause. In June of 1776, he signed up to fight. Again, his experience had parallels with Hale's, but without the frustrations. He was, a, he was in Brooklyn in time to face the British advance, took part in the fighting instead of sitting, sitting it out, and withdrew with the rest of Washington's forces. William Talmadge, Benjamin's older brother, was captured by the British during the fighting and died soon after on a prison boat, the Jersey. Benjamin Talmadge's commitment to the rebel cause had become personal. Smart and well-connected, Talmadge was quickly promoted through the ranks. He first came to Washington's attention while acting as a brigade manager for General Jeremiah Wadsworth in October. Two months later, he was offered a captain's post in the newly raised 2nd Dragoons, led by Colonel Elijah Sheldon. In this new role, he commanded a unit of 43 men, trained to fight both on horse and on foot, whose job was to carry out scouting missions and skirmish with their opposite members on the British side. Following their formation, the 2nd Dragoons traveled to Connecticut to buy their horses, while on this mundane purchasing mission, Talmadge began to work as Sackett's military man, as Sackett started running his espionage work across Long Island Sound. The first operation Talmadge was involved in was a covert intelligence mission by Major John Clark, a young lawyer turned specialist military scout. Clark was smuggled into Long Island with Talmadge's help. There he learned to blend in with the locals and to covertly watch the British troops. He spent months behind enemy lines, gathering information on British forces and how the opposing army was run. Talmadge had grown up in Setauk at Long Island, and it is likely his family and other contacts there helped to shelter Clark, as well as to carry messages back across the Sound. Clark's intelligence passed to Washington via Talmadge and Sackett provided valuable insight into what was happening among the enemy lines. While Clark was on Long Island, Talmadge was promoted to major, then summoned along with the rest of his regiment to join the army in New Jersey. There, the dragoons, dragoons returned to their scouting and skirmishing role. Meanwhile, Sackett was developing groundbreaking espionage techniques that would become fundamental to American intelligence work. Instead of sending in temporary agents to gather specific information and come back out with it, he established permanent agents living in enemy territory under assumed personas. They provided him with intelligence reports on whatever was happening at the time, theoretically ensuring a steady supply of intelligence and greater security for the agents whose identity Sackett was careful to protect. Unfortunately, the quality of agents and their intelligence work was less impressive than the quality of Sackett's work, and he was unable to provide as much intelligence as Washington wanted. Some mysterious fiasco befell his operations, apparently involving a horse and a doctor, through the details were sadly never recorded. In the aftermath, he was removed from Washington's intelligence operations with a parting payment of $500. Both sides were increasingly ruthless in tackling enemy sources of information. Spies and traitors were executed in growing numbers, including loyalist recruiters caught by the Patriots. In an atmosphere of hostility and, and paranoia, a few misplaced words or suspicious look at the wrong mo movement could have someone hanged. Washington had learned some critical lessons in intelligence analysis from his work with Sackett. He realized 
that to be valuable information, it had to be received in a timely way, so it was still relevant. It also had to be cross-referenced, particularly where troop estimates were concerned, as agents made mistakes and a single report could not be relied upon when lives were at stake. Sometime in the summer, Clark returned from his work on Long Island, in time to be wounded in a skirmish with the British. In September, the British again defeated the Patriots, this time at Brandywine, which is about seven miles south of Philadelphia, allowing them to take the city of Philadelphia. Washington, aware of Clark's excellent work, sent him out to establish a network of spies around the newly captured city and the forts defending it. The agents spent three months undercover, sleeping rough in the, in the countryside, suffering from winter weather and pain from his injured shoulder. In that time, he, spent, he sent 30 reports on enemy activity to Washington, as well as planting false information through his contacts. Smugglers allowed through the British lines due to a shortage of supplies because some of his most useful agents he also got messages through using a pile of British officers who he passed and as he laid his hands on them. But this could not continue. Clark's injury would not heal properly, and he was exhausted from months of grueling field work. He missed his wife, who he hadn't seen in more than a year. A grateful Washington provided him with a contact who found the desk job auditing the Army's expenses. Mayor Clark's impressive career in espionage had come to a bitter end. That the reins would be taken up by Talmadge was not immediately quite apparent. He had spent the rest of 1777 in scouting and skirmishing with the British, witnessing atrocities by the British cavalry that outraged him. Early in, early in 1778, his regiment was given a chance to rest, but in the taking of their time off, the officers failed to deal with the state of neglect that their men and horses had fallen into. Talmadge and the other officers were rebuked for their failings, and Washington, with whom he had previously had a positive relationship, froze the young major out. In June, the tide of war shifted once more. The British, now led by Henry Clinton, realized they could not hold on to Philadelphia. They retreated to New York City, harassed the whole way by Washington and his men. By the end of the month, the Patriots once again sat facing British-occupied New York. They were going to need intelligence on what was happening inside. Benjamin Talmadge's hour had come. So we're going to talk now about the birth of the, of the Copper Ring, a city facing both ways. Despite Congress's decision to save the city, New York was devastated by fire just after the original British occupation in 1776. An accidental conflagration was encountered by those who wanted to see the city burn, and though it was saved from total destruction by the demolition of buildings to form fire breaks, it became an ash-shrouded shell of its former glory. In this atmosphere lived the desperate, the greedy, and the tenacious. Those profiting from the war held grand parties streets away from the destitute refugees and tenuously pacing redcoats. Smuggling was rife. Formerly smart districts were given over to prostitutes serving the troops, and this was meant to try them, give them diseases. Legitimate businesses continued to work, printing out newspapers, selling groceries, serving food and drinks to those who could afford it. But this was not the noble, independent spirit city it once had been. The city's inhabitants survived by being willing to look both ways. Whoever marched through their city and its surroundings, the crowds would cheer them on. Whoever was paying for information, someone would bring it to them. Whoever sought out supplies could buy them for the right price though there were some in the city fiercely dedicated to each side. The overall atmosphere was of people just trying to get by. It's kind of like today, huh? Loyalties were uncertain. 
So through all this, we can see that nothing has changed today of 270 years later. Some were for sale, while others were carefully kept secrets, a burning dedication to a cause that their owners felt forced to keep quiet. It was the perfect place for spies. So we introduced another player um, by the name of Brewster. On the 7th of August, Washington received a letter from Lieutenant Caleb Brewster, a former whaler from Norfolk, or Norwalk, North, Norwalk, Connecticut. Brewster had grown up alongside Talmadge in the Presbyterian community of Setauket on the east side of Long Island. A man with a craving for adventure, he gave up farming at 19 to become a whaler, a job involving hard work, danger, and months of deprivation, but which brought in with it action and the chance for significant profit thanks to the value of whale oil. When war broke out, he joined the, the Suffolk County Militia, becoming a full lieutenant in early 1776. When his company disbanded, he strayed along with the army and took part in successful boat-borne raids across Long Island Sound in the fall of 1776. He was part of the network Talmadge used to support Clark on Long Island, but spent most of 1777 and the first half of 1778 with the primary Patriot Army. Now Brewster offered to use his daring and local knowledge for a different sort of adventure. He wanted to become an agent for Washington as Clark had been. It was an opening Washington sorely needed. He knew nothing about what was happening with the British inside New York, not their numbers, not their commanders, not their movements. If he was to beat them, he needed a source of timely information, but he had been bitten before and was wary of fostering another unreliable source, as had happened to Hale and Sackett. So he wrote back to Brewster, setting out what he needed. The information had to be timely and specific to be useful to him. He specified the sort of information he wanted, including the movement of troops, numbers of draft horses, and suppliers of provisions. Brewster submitted his first report on the 27th of August. It detailed the return of British ships to New York Harbor, damaged by storms and a fight against the French fleet. There was also information about where troops were being gathered in and around New York, which showed the British were preparing to relieve their garrison at Newport. This was vital intelligence for Washington, who did not know where the British fleet was and who had been working on plans to seize Newport. Brewster had provided his value and Washington intended to keep using him. Like Clark, Brewster needed a support structure within the Patriot military, someone who could provide a regular channel for messages to the general. Washington chose Charles Scott to oversee Brewster's work. Scott was an experienced soldier and a commander of light infantry, troops and troops who specialized in scouting and skirmishing. He, therefore, had the right mindset and experience for information gathering work. His job would be not just to oversee the existing spy, but to recruit more agents to work with him. As Scott's aid in this, Washington chose Talmadge. His dragoons regularly worked with light infantry. He'd experienced from his work with Sackett and Clark, and he knew both Brewster and the local area quite well. As a general and field commander, Scott was already a busy man, so much of his intelligence work fell upon Talmadge, after the shame of being reprimanded earlier in the year, this was his chance for redemption. So now we're going to explain how Abe or Abraham Woodhall becomes Cauper. One of Talmadge's first recruits was a Long Island farmer named Abraham Woodhall, another man he had known from childhood. Woodhall had become involved in smuggling his farm produce. So Woodhull had no, no way to sell it in the Setauket area, so he had to smuggle it into uh, New York City and, and sell it to the British. He would take his goods to New York where, he was, where there was a shortage of basic foodstuffs, 
but a plentiful supply of the luxuries provided by Britain's international trade. He bartered produce for luxuries, then crossed the Sound to Patriot-controlled areas, where he sold these luxuries, hard to obtain in the revolutionary territory for hard green cash. Most military men were happy to turn a blind eye to smuggling, but politicians were concerned that reminders of British luxuries might stoke loyalist sentiments, and so periodic attempts were made to stop the smugglers. Woodhall was captured in one of these efforts and ended up in a Connecticut jail. In August of 1778, Talmadge arranged Woodhall's release. In return, Woodhall was recruited as an agent. Smugglers already brought, bought small pieces of intelligence out of New York, along with tea and silk. Woodhall's recruitment was the logical extension of this. Woodhall was less drawn to the action than Talmadge and Brewster, and had long been more politically moderate than them. But in September of 1777, his relative general, Nathaniel Woodhall, died in both captivity allegedly dying from mistreatment by his captors. The truth of his death remains quite uncertain, but Woodhall brought into the dark narrative of unjustified assault printed in the Patriot Press. He became fervently anti-British with this. When Talmadge offered him the chance to serve the revolution, it was also Woodhall's chance to pursue a personal vendetta. Woodhall was more than happy to sign up, taking on a task that would let him carry on providing for his family while he stuck, struck back at the men he had hated for killing his brother. In case any intelligence correspondence was captured by the enemy, Talmadge, Washington, and Scott came up with aliases to use when writing about them, about the men involved in this work. Talmadge would be known as John Bolton. The reckless Brewster struck with his own name. Woodhall was given the name that referenced Charles Scott's initials. Washington's teenage employment in Culpeper County and Talmadge's young brother, Samuel. Woodhall would be known as Samuel Culper. So let's talk about some local connections. The running of the new intelligence service was not entirely smooth. Scott clashed with any subordinate he had who would threaten his position, and Talmadge's combination of good work and contacts ensured and fitted this description quite well. More importantly, for their mission, the two men favored very different approaches to intelligence gathering. Scott was a traditionalist. He wanted to send scouts across enemy lines on short-term missions to collect specific information as had happened with Hale. This was a tried and tested method, and that did not run the central risk of a spy ring. That if one person was caught in question, the revelations could lead to the capture of everybody else. Talmadge, on the other hand, wanted to expand upon the methods Sackett had established, planning a network of long-term agents with cover stories. This could provide a better source of ongoing intelligence. At first, Washington favored the traditional scheme, but in mid-September, the British tightened up their perimeter and guard procedures, leading to the capture of several Scots scouts. By the end of the month, Washington had become persuaded he should try Talmadge's approach. As Talmadge began building his network, often sidestepping Scott, the more senior man steps aside, making his work and excuses to the end of October. He resigned from intelligence work, leaving it all to Talmadge. The new network Talmadge built was based around Brewster and Woodhall. The three men came from the same community. Their families had known each other for generations. Brewster and Woodhall trusted Talmadge and insisted on making him their only channel for information to Washington. Local connections and personal loyalty bound in the spy ring together. On his return to Long Island, Woodhall was at first viewed with suspicion by the loyalist authorities. But not long after the British offered pardons for revolutionary activity 
to any man willing to swear an oath of loyalty to the king. Woodhall swore the oath, painting a picture of himself as a believer in the loyalist cause. On the 29th of October, Woodhall sent his first written report. These early reports were copied out by Talmadge and the originals destroyed. So not even Woodhall's handwriting could connect him to the information. Talmadge later started sending original reports to headquarters, reducing their security and learning and evidence trail for later historians to follow. Woodhall's job had two parts, acting as a contact for Brewster and traveling into New York to gather information. The latter was the more awkward and dangerous part for him. He had to pass questioning as British checkpoints, buy permits to travel into the city, bear the cost of staying away from home, and neglect his duties of caring for his parents and the family farm. It reflected his passion for the patriotic cause that he bore these burdens. Woodhall's early reports were of mixed quality. Information on troops was vague, unhealthful, and in at least one case inaccurate. But he provided information on the provisioning of the British and Loyalists, information which was vital to Washington in understanding the state of his enemies and how they might act. So the copper circle expands. Woodhall quickly began recruiting others to help him with his information gathering and so to spare him repeated trips into the city. His first recruit was Amos Underhill, the husband of Woodhall's sister, Mary, a former mill owner. Underhill moved into New York after his property was destroyed by the British during the Battle of New York. He became a merchant and took in boarders to help pay for the bills, including Woodhall during his trips into town. Supplies were short in a city that was cut off from mainland and filled with soldiers and loyalist refugees. Every penny counted for Underhill and his family. On the 23rd of November, Woodhall provided a report that more than made up for his previous vagueness. He provided the names of commanders and units in the British occupation force, as well as their movements. In addition to this information, which Washington had requested, he provided something else, estimates of numbers. Washington had not asked for these, as estimates from previous agents had been unreliable, but Woodhall's were convincingly and useful. Though Woodhall was providing his value as an, as an asset, he was also proving awkward to run. He insisted on only sending messages out through the trusted Brewster, but Brewster could not be provided with a permanent boat crew to carry messages across the sound. At this would risk drawing attention to their activities. Getting messages out promptly was quite difficult. One peculiarity of the agents of the Culper Ring, especially Woodhull, was their attitude toward their work. This sort of intelligence gathering was looked down upon in Europe and its American colonies. As a result, the agents did not like to think of themselves as spies. They went to a great length to find other ways to refer to their work. They did not accept payment for work, their work, as this would have been an acknowledgement that they were spies, even though it would have been incredibly valuable to a man such as a struggling Woodhall, a cabbage farmer. He kept careful notes on all of his expenses he incurred while undertaking this business, and his reports included details of these costs, as well as insistence that they be paid at some time. Financially, he could not afford to be at a loss thanks to his intelligence gathering. But personally, he could not afford to acknowledge that he had become or to make it official through wages. Reimbursing Woodhall was made difficult because he could not be paid in Congress's paper money, which was of no use inside occupied New York anyway. The British currency or bullion he wanted was more valuable than the inflation-ravaged congressional cash, as well as harder to obtain. One of these tensions between Washington and Woodhall came from the general's insistence that he spy 
that the spy be economical in his expenses, a comment that offended Woodhull until Washington explained the currency problem. Finances would poison their working relationship throughout the war. Despite the tensions and practical challenges, the spy ring was now firmly in place and providing valuable intelligence. Washington could be pleased with a network that history would know as the copper ring. So there were many communication problems. Over the winter in 1778 through 79, military campaigning quieted down considerably. This gave Talmadge the time he needed to iron out the wrinkles in the copper ring. The most critical challenge was to get the intelligence through more quickly. Though things weren't moving fast over winter, information still needed to be timely to have much value at all. The energetic Brewster could carry messages across the sound quickly, but issues on land added delays. The issues on the Connecticut side were easy to address as they came within the control of the military. Arranging meetings between Talmadge and Brewster delayed the reports reaching the Patriot chain of command, as did getting through checkpoints set up to stop enemy agents. To deal with this, a regular chain of Dragoon riders was stationed at Danbury to receive messages from Brewster to carry them to the army camp. Though the riders had no idea that these, who these messages were from, they must have recognized their importance thanks to both their orders and the special passers they were given, providing permission to pass quickly through the American lines. It was more challenging to deal with the delays on the New York side. Woodhall was doing most of his spying out of Underhill's house in the city. This was 55 miles away from Brewster's pickup point, a quiet, wood-shrouded bayside Setauket. Carrying message, messages there dragged Woodhall away from New York and took travel time. To get around this, Talmadge recruited two men to act as couriers, Joannes Hawkins and Austin Rowe who were again members of established Setauket families, men who Woodhall and Brewster knew and who had been open about their patriot sympathies earlier in the war. Though not as deeply involved in spying as Woodhall and Brewster, they risked their lives carrying secret messages out of New York to be shipped across the Sound. The result was a radical improvement of the timeless and frequency of reports. By the end of January of 1779, a report which would previously have taken at least two weeks to reach Washington was in his hands in only seven days.